This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and it is my great good fortune to say hello to Alice Elliott Dark, who's one of my personal favorite writers, and I cannot believe we are here tonight, because I don't know how many of you remember In the Gloaming. Right, so 93, this story just explodes in The New Yorker, right? Totally explodes. And then Updike himself picks it for the best American short stories of the century the next year. And then somehow I'm convinced that the book comes out five minutes after that, and in fact, in the Gloaming, the story collection, pubbed in 2000. And then there was a novel called Think of England in 2002. Okay, we're sitting here taping in July of 2022. And there's something I've been dying to ask, Alice. Where have you been? (laughs) Where have you been? Well, the CIA called me. (laughs) um, No, I've been writing all this time, and I wrote a couple of novels that are sitting in my basement Mm -hmm. that didn't work out. I Mm -hmm. just couldn't figure them out. And I started teaching, and really, honestly, that took a lot of time, too. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel like I disappeared. Right. Um, <laughs> I felt very present in my own mm-hmm. life, but yep. I just took a step back from thinking about publishing a book. Mm-hmm. And then when I started this book, I started thinking, okay, I'm going to make this one work no matter what. Right. Okay, so this is not the book you sold, though, in no. 2000. Originally, this was going to be... A novel about a book club. Yes. Can we talk about that for a second? Yes. I wrote that book, and it was just unfortunate timing with that book, because Mm -hmm. another big book about a book club came out at that time. So I put that book away. Um, I still have it, and I still think it's good. I mean, if I went back to it, I would completely rewrite it, though, because it's 20 years later, and I'm not Mm -hmm. the same person. But it was funny um, and kind of light. I heard the first draft of this book, though, came in at 1,400 pages. Yes. And the second draft came in at 800. Yes. The one I turned into my Mm -hmm. agent, Henry Dunau, was 800 pages. And he passed it forward at 800 pages. And that was too long. And I knew it was too long. I don't usually say this, but I'm not entirely sold on the idea that 800 pages was too long. We need to talk about how you got from this idea of a book club novel to a really big, sweeping, modern 19th century novel about class and feminism and family and love and writing. This is a much bigger book than you originally set out to write. It was much bigger than anything I thought I would ever write. I was a poet until I was 28 years old. I Mm -hmm. never thought I'd be anything but a poet. Mm -hmm. But my poems started getting longer. And then I decided I'll start writing prose. And it took me a while to figure out how to do, you know, every new thing is Mm -hmm. a new form. It's not like, oh, you can do this, so you can do that. You're learning all over again to do a new form. And this one, I was, I watched... um, a TV show, a miniseries, He Knew He Was Right Mm -hmm. by Anthony Trollope. And I was like, oh my God, I love this so much. I love the plots, the subplots. I love the twists and turns. Why have I never given myself permission to learn how to do this? 
mm-hmm. and I decided I did want to do it. And as it turned out, it was the right venue for things that I've been obsessed with all my life. And I didn't even really think all that through. They just kind of came together as I started writing the book. I have always been interested in land. Mm-hmm. It's never made any sense to me at all that people own land. And that came into the book. Mm-hmm. And interested, of course, in feminism. I always say I became a feminist when I was two and my brother was born. <laughs> that's, that's all it took <laughs> to see the difference. And, you know, I think my parents would say that they were equal, but it's never quite like that. You know, the other issues in the book, too, I grew up in Philadelphia. People were Quaker all around me. My stepfather was Quaker. I was very exposed to that. And why don't I write, why don't I make them Quakers? It's so fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's one of the few early American small sects that survived into the present. And the Quakers thrived. They still are. All of those things, really lifelong things. I've seen a lot, of t- a lot of people talking about Fellowship Point mainly as a novel about friendship between two women and Polly, and Agnes have been friends for 80 years, but it is so much more than that. Agnes is never married. Polly marries a guy called Dick. We will get to Dick in a minute. They have some children. We will get to James, who needs to be punted into the sun, but we will get there as well. On the surface, their lives are very different, and yet this friendship endures. So can we talk about how these women showed up for you? Again, I mean, you go from 1,400 pages to 800 pages to 500 and change, but how did this start for you? Polly came first. The -hmm. first character was actually Virgil, and I wrote many pages about him. And then Polly came into it. Polly and Robert came just about the same time. Mm -hmm. And I actually wrote a draft that was just... Robert moving in with Polly after he got out of prison. Okay. And the two of them developing a relationship, both both very internal, private people. And then and that set me on some of the themes of the mm-hmm. book. But then when Agnes came in, the book blew up. It just became a much bigger book because I could mm-hmm. put so much into her uh, belief system and Also, she's a different kind of character, I think, than a lot of the women we see in novels. And that was really fun for me, to explore someone who I would personally really want to be friends with and know and hang out with, Mm -hmm. Um, but also make her not not lovable, just more like interesting. And challenging. And people have said to me, is she a feminist? I'm like, well, she is, but she's much more of an egalitarian. She's a vegetarian. She, you know, she's, it's, it's across the board. It's nature, it's animals, it's men, it's women. It's like everything should be equal. That's her belief system. And she really does believe it, but she's not always that easy to get along with as such people can be. I have a fondness for Agnes that might have something to do with my Aunt Lois and my Aunt Jenna and my Aunt Mildred. New England is home for me, and so these women are really, they are very iconic kinds of New England characters. I realize they are from Philadelphia, but Maine has rubbed off on them. For those of you who don't know, I want to bring Virgil into the conversation for a second. He is a writer from the 60s. We're jumping back and forth in time between sort of the 
mid early mid-60s to the early aughts. And Virgil has a role to play, but he's gone to the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and he's had a novel come out. And he's been uh, surpassed a little bit by a couple of writers called Kerouac and Capote, and he had the great fortune, as some of us have seen, of being published in a moment that was not his. And uh, he befriends Agnes and Polly, and that sets off some things that we're actually not going to talk about here, because you need to read this for yourself. But... We also have Robert, Robert Circumstance, who, as Alice has said, has gone to prison. And when he's released, has this friendship with Polly. Agnes had sort of been his benefactor when he was young. She decided that he deserved a bigger life than this life he was going to have in this tiny spit of land in Maine. And to see all of these people come together on Fellowship Point, which when you're writing about Maine, you're writing about class. And there are a lot of folks who think of Maine just as sort of the fancy coastal bits with the very expensive houses and the big boats and the art and everything else. There are bits of the coast of Maine that are like uh, Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard. Interior Maine, though, is very different. And the folks who live in these very fancy coastal communities, too, who work in these houses and make these communities run they're not quite in the same position. And Robert, he's a smart guy. He's kept up a correspondence with Dick, Polly's husband, who, he's who he is. It's fine. But the life of the mind that your characters get to live, whether it's Agnes or Polly or Robert or Virgil, there's also Maud, who we're going to bring in. Maud comes up from New York. She's a baby editor who thinks Agnes needs to write a different kind of book that Agnes is not prepared to write. All of these people, though, were deep into their own intellectual and emotional terrain. They don't all have language for what they're going through, especially for the emotional bits. They really don't have the language to talk about this. But what was the most fun for you? Letting them just go off? and show you who they were? Or were you trying to figure out how everything intersected and sort of tap them in directions that you needed them to go in? It was one following the next. Okay. I let them go off mm -hmm. first. I think I probably wrote a couple of hundred pages about each of them. Just their backstory, who they were, but not the kind of backstory of... Um, you know, filling in a list of this is their favorite color and this is their mm -hmm. pet, not like that, but just scenes that I saw them in. You mm -hmm. know, I would just imagine them in certain situations and watch what they did. You know, I started putting them together and listening mm -hmm. to what they said to each other. I really do step back when I'm writing. I mm -hmm. don't force it. I just mm -hmm. step back and see what they're doing and the direction they're taking. And yeah, I mean, it, it took me a while to piece the whole thing together, just as I was piecing Fellowship Point together, because right. it's an invented place. Mm -hmm. So it would be, okay, so Agnes and Polly, they're going to live next to each other. And then where does, you know, where do the other families live in that case? And 
where does Agnes's ancestor, why doesn't he give himself the best house? You know, those kind of questions. Mm -hmm. And it would be like two steps forward, one back to fill in what I figured out after I, you know, the next thing happened, then I'd have to go back. You know, as I was prepping for the show, I was sort of outlining everyone's relationships. And, you know, Polly has her sons and her husband and her grandchildren. She's got all of these familial connections. And Agnes keeps saying, well, no, 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 I'm fine. Now, Agnes has never married, which for a woman of her age is not standard, right? When you think about all of the people who come into Agnes's orbit, you've got Maude, you've got Virgil, you've got Robert, even Polly's granddaughters, the M girls, who are adorable. <laughs> Everyone has come in, and Agnes has actually made a family in her own way. Now, she also still thinks of herself as her father's daughter. And Polly does not have quite that relationship with her parents. Can we talk about the sort of evolution of their worldview, their individual worldviews? Yes. Um, Polly's more on the surface of it conventional, mm -hmm. and she follows a much more conventional path. She gets married right out of college. They both went to college. Mm -hmm. Agnes has a romance that fails, and that's sort of it for her. She's not mm -hmm. that interested. We see something later in the book that was a second possibility of romance that doesn't quite happen. Agnes's worldview was very shaped by her father, who was the inheritor of a fortune, mm -hmm. and kind of the last person who really had the fortune, because Agnes is told when she's 40 years old, you have to make some money if you want to keep Fellowship Point. Mm -hmm. it's not, the money's not going to be there because the company isn't doing that well right. anymore. And the company ends up not doing well because it was built on rather old-fashioned business ideas which have faded into the past. Very much gentleman's handshake kind of ideas. And her line is idealistic. And she's inherited that from mm -hmm. her great-grandfather, her grandfather, her father. Polly's parents are much more social. They're much more social and in the world. They don't have the kind of idealism that Agnes's does. And it's interesting because the two of them very much influence each other mm -hmm. about these things. You know, they're kind of drawn in different directions by the Polly's husband, too whose name is Dick, and he's a professor of philosophy, and he writes a book about pacifism. It's funny because you said Virgil before is a little bitter that his book came out the same year as Kerouac. Well, Dick's a little bitter that his book um, on pacifism comes out right before World War II. And he thinks it ruined, he's Hitler ruined my career. You know, that's his, that's his like, I know, it's kind of a bad joke, but that's a private joke between him and Polly, but, uh, you know, it's in the book. I don't know why I did, like, two people who are bitter like that, but... Well, you know, the thing about Dick, too, is he doesn't realize quite how bright his wife is. No. And she, in fact, comes up with a theory, a philosophical theory, that on the face of it, you think, wait, what did I just read? And it makes perfect sense. But she can't just talk to him about it at the dinner table. She ends up mailing him a letter and doesn't even sign her own name to it. And she finds this letter years later in his study, and she's like, well, at least he read it. But nothing ever happens. And Polly, 
She likes the tennis club. She really, really wants a daughter. She really wants a daughter so she can talk to her about arranging flowers and throwing dinner parties. She feels like she has this very specific skill set. And here's Agnes in the back saying, I told you that theory was good. Why are you waiting for the man to validate? So, I mean, Agnes really, she kind of, she's very Agnes. She's angry all her life Mm -hmm. that Polly doesn't put her first. Right. Polly does put her first as much as she's capable, but she has all these other connections that Agnes does not have. And although Agnes understands it, of course, she's very upset about it, and that comes up a few times in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that incident that you're talking about, about Dick in the letter, after Polly has one of her children, she really goes into sort of a fugue state and she can't sleep, and she's Mm -hmm. writing and writing and writing, and she comes up with this theory, and when she tells it to Dick, she tells it to him, and he says, oh, you know, that's a very well-known theory. It's nothing new. Don't get excited. And Agnes is like, don't listen to him. He's wrong. He's just putting you down. He's holding you back. She doesn't say all that, but that's what she Mm -hmm. thinks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which brings me to James number one son of Polly and Dick. And early on we meet him and he's being a little bossy with his mother and sort of saying, well, we've got to deal with Fellowship Point and I need to make sure that your money's okay. And my first thought when I met James, honestly, was, huh, after punt him into the sun. That was literally the first thing. The second thing, though, was he's broke. He's got to be broke. And for a guy like James, for someone to say you've got to be broke is probably the worst thing you could say to him. And I realize my notes go on, my marginalia is a little out of control in the galley, but can we talk about Polly's sons for a second? Because they are very much the opposite of Robert, even their dad to a certain extent, because they're just, they're very much in the world. They want to make sure that things are taken care of. They want to make sure they live in nice places and have access to nice things. So they've sort of tread their own path, but man, that James, he's... mm, mm. James is... You know how they, that joke of um, George Bush, Bush is everyone's first husband? Yeah. He's that. He's no, that totally. Guy. He's that guy. Yeah, they're much more like their grandparents. Right. You know, they're in this kind of social framework. They're not, none of them are great people. Mm-hmm. None of them live up to Polly's quiet greatness that we see her come into later in the book. And there's a moment, too, where the boys try to move mom in a direction that mom is not prepared to go. And I think they are not prepared for mom's response, which was quite excellent. I may have underestimated Polly at first simply because of the surface appearance. She likes the tennis club. She likes the ladies. She likes her life, everything else. But I think everyone kind of underestimated Polly for a long time, except for Agnes. Yes. Agnes, starting when they were young at school... Polly was very popular. The teachers all liked her. The other girls liked her. They invited her to go on vacation with them. Agnes was not that popular. Mm -hmm. The teachers liked her because she was so smart. Polly was, she thought Polly was her, her intellectual equal, although not a good thinker, Mm -hmm. not a developed Mm -hmm. thinker. And she tried to train Polly how to 
really be a critical thinker, and Polly just kind of was resistant. But she never, she never gets over the idea that she can always go to Polly to talk some something through. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of the frustrations of her life that she can't tell Polly about her writing. Her adult novels, she's writing under a pseudonym, right? And she doesn't tell Polly about them because. She doesn't want Polly to have to keep a secret from Dick. She knows how much that would hurt Polly. Mm -hmm. But I think she really wishes she could talk to Polly about it and tell her these books are mine, because Polly, of course, has read them all. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's a very interesting dynamic between them, too, that there's some very big secrets between them. They're very big secrets, but there's also a lot of very ferocious loyalty. And loyalty isn't a word that we often apply to stories about women's friendship. Right, there's who gets the boy, who gets the girl, who gets the house, who gets the dream career. All of these things where, you know, certainly there is a subset of reader that comes across women like Agnes and Polly and thinks, huh, well, what do I do with these women? They're just living their lives and they're a little prickly and they're a little imperfect, but they are ferociously loyal to each other. They are, and I think I take that for granted, but I realize it isn't for it isn't mm -hmm. to be taken for granted. I do get frustrated myself reading books where the drama is the women fighting with each other or being right. in conflict with each mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. I've been frustrated by that all my life. I don't enjoy it. I think there just as much dramatic interest can come out of a fiercely loyal mm -hmm. long-term friendship like this. They do have a big falling out in the book mm -hmm. um, that's legitimate, I think. It's not, it's not trumped up and it's not over a man, it's not any of that kind of thing. It's a legitimate moment of real difference between them mm -hmm. that they have never talked through up to that point which was really satisfying and fun to write. But I agree with you. I think a friendship like this is not that often portrayed to us. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very, actually, it's not that unusual. It's mm -hmm. just not thought of as being really dramatic, but it is. I think there are certainly critics too who still treat, you know, sort of domestic dramas for want of a better phrase. They treat them like they're just sort of, you know, these little dalliances and these little stories, almost like soap operas. And in fact, there are plenty of domestic dramas, honestly, that could be big, sweeping political novels. I mean, take, for instance, Michael Cunningham's The Hours, right? It's the retelling of Mrs. Dalloway. And if you look at that section of Mrs. Brown in 1949, Pasadena, she's having a nervous breakdown in her kitchen in front of her child because her life has gone off the rails and she's stuck in this horrible marriage and everything else. And this all happens in, what, 25 pages? My husband and I were talking about that exact section of the mm. book today. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's really funny you brought that up. Because, yes, I, first place, I love that book. Mm -hmm. same, same. I taught it this winter with Mrs. Dalloway, and it's so fascinating right? what he did in that book. But, yes, that, it's, it's a really brilliant section. And... There's the neighbor, mm -hmm. you know, her interest in the neighbor, which is so fascinating. Yeah, I agree with you. It, those things, to me, have always been as interesting and as powerful as adventure stories, as war stories, right. all of that. And I, I really write against, I mean, obviously, I kind of write against that and saying, mm -hmm. yes, this is a big story, too, these 80-year-old women. 
are just as legitimate of actors as men on the world stage. And one of the ways you're wrestling, too, with this entire world that you've created, whether it's Fellowship Point or Philadelphia, what have you, is also the idea of capturing the passage of time, right? So how many people have read Lauren Groff's Matrix? It's tiny, okay. So the way Groff, have you read that? Yes. Okay, so, I mean, one, Lauren got me to care about nuns in the 12th century, so right there. But the way she captures time, where she'll drop a line and she'll say, oh, suddenly we went from 35 nuns to 60. Or the season changed, and it's two sentences. Yeah. You're doing this across 500 pages, too, with these two women, and there'll just be a line where it's a small thing, and suddenly you realize that time has moved forward, and this narrative keeps moving forward over 80 years. Mm -hmm. And occasionally we drop back in time, and occasionally we flash forward, and I will tell you the ending is so satisfying. I'm going to be terrible and just tell you it's really, really satisfying. But for you as the writer, let's talk about how you capture the passage of time without resorting to cliché, without needing to... I mean, you referenced 9-11 in a way where it took me a minute to realize what you were talking about, and I live in downtown New York, and I was here, and it still took me a minute. And I love moments like that because it makes me stop and sit in the book and sit with the characters and sit with what they're experiencing, and I have to step away. So can we just talk about that little bit of magic? One thing I really have learned, or at least for myself, about writing is never to explain why a person is the way they are, Mm -hmm. just to make a dramatic case for why they are the way they are. So the moments I have that are backstory or that go back and forth in time, it's because that backstory or that moment of slippage of time is dramatically relevant to the present moment of the story. So that's the way I thought about it. And if I found myself starting to explain something, I just took it away. Mm-hmm. because I never am moved by that. I don't mind reading a lot of backstory, and there is in this book, but it's very dramatically relevant to the mm-hmm. present story and to the solution of the present story. And I just want to say it's funny you brought up The Matrix, because I really thought of Agnes as a mother superior. Oh, completely. Oh, <laughs> completely. I, okay, also... I wouldn't mind riding a horse through the front door of a house, but that's me. Yeah, I can see that. With I mean, Agnes is sort of the spiritual spine of Fellowship Point. I mean, she's the one who pushes Polly in directions that Polly's not fully prepared yeah. to get. Oh, yeah, and there's Cousin Archie and his... Ooh, his tacky, tacky wife. I'm just going <laughs> to... Cousin Archie, man, he is... Mm. Well, that's the funny thing is that in spite of Agnes and Polly being very high-minded in a lot of ways. There's still some snobbery to them. Mm -hmm. And that character, Celia Lee, you know, they look at her with that snobbery that they've inherited. Mm -hmm. I wanted to keep certain aspects of them intact like that in spite of the way they try to be enlightened about things. It's not all resolved. What's fun, though, is watching the two of them try to expand... Their worlds. And yes, they are not nice to the tacky wife, but the wife is still tacky. But watching them navigate space and time and family legacy and memory and try to sort of chip away at these things that have held them in places, and in some cases their own ideas. I mean, there are a couple of moments where I rolled my eyes at dear old Agnes and 
I, and I admitted earlier that I underestimated Polly completely, but as much as I love Agnes, she had a couple of moments where I was like, wait a minute, lady, what did you just do? No, I agree with that. And my son said, you know, you're going to get in trouble for some of this about her because she rubs the wrong way in places. So I said, yeah, but I have to be really authentic to mm-hmm. who she is. Mm-hmm. And she's not completely easy. She just isn't. She reminds me of, you know, you referenced your aunts. Mm-hmm. There were people, there were teachers at my school that mm-hmm. were like Agnes. My godmother was like Agnes. And they were people I really looked up to so much. But they were complicated people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone who lives the way that Agnes has lived, where pretty much she can arrange her day she want, the way she wants to, she has enough money, she has no one else she has to answer to, you know, things develop in a person like that that can be a little bit, I wouldn't say selfish, but there's a self-regard that is not necessarily compassionate in every situation. Agnes has a little difficulty reading the room. She does. She sees stuff that doesn't align, and she means well. Even though she's prickly, she means well. She really does. There are moments with Agnes where I worried about her ending up lonely in a way because she's so intense and she knows what she wants and it doesn't always align with reality. Polly always seemed like she was going to be fine. Maybe not necessarily happy, but she was always going to be fine. Whereas Agnes always sort of felt like she was throwing an elbow to get through whatever was happening in the moment. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about it that way. But when you say it like that, I really see what you're saying because she could, Agnes could go too far. She Mm. really could. And as it happens, she's actually sort of prevented from that by Polly's presence. Right. Right up to the very end Mm -hmm. of the book. Yeah. They're a pretty terrific couple. They really are. And, And I don't necessarily mean that in the romantic sense, but they are a unit. And it's rare to see friendship Two things I love to read about, friendship and siblings, because siblings are hard to get right. Yeah. And because it's such a delicate relationship and you don't want it to be weird and creepy. As Polly and Agnes's relationship sort of unfolded, did anything surprise you? Or did you just sort of understand who these women were and you just sort of let them go? I was surprised in the later parts of the book at how much Polly came into her own. And... There's a very dramatic situation that happens late in the book that I won't reveal. Mm -hmm. But I tried it a couple of ways. I tried it with Agnes being the dramatic actor in that situation. Mm -hmm. I was like, no, but it really is Polly who would be the one to see this clearly because Agnes's anger is in a different place than Polly's. Polly's Mm -hmm. is very direct at this moment. And that's a development for her. She's We sort of get the sense that she's been, you know, she's been thinking about her children. I think all those boys are disappointments to her at a a certain level, especially James. Mm -hmm. She's, she doesn't delude herself about who her children are. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, she's very loyal to them. She's supportive of them. She helps them out. She does all the right things. But when she has a chance to make a call on someone later in the book, when she doesn't have that conflict of loyalty, she's really able to step up to it. And I think that throws light back on her all through the book at how she's been making these judgments, but she hasn't been expressing them. 
And also, women's anger still makes a great many people very uncomfortable. We get angry. Well, especially, you know, women who are in their 80s. Uh-huh. You know, and I think Agnes has a few moments when she's... Well, both of them do. I mean, when Polly's sons basically, after um, she's alone in the world, mm-hmm. want her to sell her house. And she's like, wait a second. You know, why are you, know, why are you even thinking about that? I'm perfectly fine. And the same with Agnes. She doesn't feel that with everything she's done that she gets the world's respect. And I think that's mm-hmm. accurate to the way things are. I was really trying to make a case for their very active internal and personal lives while at the same time being true to life about Mm -hmm. how they would be treated and received in the world. I'll tell you too, the scene where the boys are talking to Polly and saying, Mom, you have to sell the house and we have to do this and we have to do that. And we're going to move you into this very nice place that's, you know, whatever. My note next to it says, it's not your money, it's mama's. And she kind of, <laughs> she goes not there. Your, yeah, and it was, <laughs> and watching Polly, and, and I, it, it, my moment of understanding that I had underestimated Polly came much before that, but I maybe cheered a little when I read that section. But I'm also keeping an eye on the clock because things are going far too fast. Time is passing far too quickly. And I want to do take a chance and just ask you who you are as a reader and who some of the big influences are. I mean, obviously you've written this incredible modern 19th century novel, so there's a little bit of Middlemarch. You certainly referenced Trollope earlier, but who are some of the other influences who have made Alice Elliott Dirk the writer we know? Well, when I was... 30, and I decided I wanted to write fiction. I started writing stories, they were bad, and I could see that they were bad. It was the time in the world when minimalism was, mm-hmm. and you know, there were a few very, a few people who were very good at it, mm-hmm. but to be very good at it, you had to understand everything about fiction. You couldn't just sit down and write a spare story, mm-hmm. and that was going to be a great minimalist story. So I took a step back. Uh, for two years, and I didn't write anything at all, which was fun, funny for me because I'd been writing since I was a child. Mm-hmm. And I read all of F. Scott Fitzgerald, I read all of Flannery O'Connor, all of Edith Wharton, all of James Baldwin, and all of Jane Bowles. Mm-hmm. Those were the five people I mm-hmm. picked. I picked them each for a different reason. And I read everything, letters, di- you know, everything of theirs I could read, which was a great education because I saw that these people who I revered had written lots of stuff that wasn't great. You know, there was a range. Mm-hmm. But I learned from each of them. So those, all five of those are part of my writing DNA in different mm-hmm. ways. And contemporary writing, I read a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. You know, I pick up a lot of books. I try them. I, you know, you mentioned Lauren Groff. I, I really did love The Matrix. I like Atessa Moshfeg. I'm interested in her. Mm-hmm. I like Jonathan Franzen. I like Oh, I mean, I could go on and on. Right. So many people. I, you know, I'm a great lover of other writers, so. It's a nice life. It Surrounding is. yourself with writers and it books. It really yeah, is. It's, a nice it's life. lucky. You've also been teaching for quite some time now. What have you learned from your students? Everything. Yeah. I mean, I've learned everything. It's one of the most fortunate things that's happened to me. Um, 
starting in Ruck, at Rutgers in 2000, the world has changed so much mm-hmm. in the last 20 years. The students have changed. Um, it's an interesting school to be at because they, diverse is the word they use for it, but it really is lots of different kinds of students. I've learned about all different religions of India, you know, religions that are very small sects because there's students there from that mm-hmm. from that particular group that I would have never heard of otherwise because they don't come into the general conversation. Mm-hmm. I've learned I've learned a lot about different voices and how they appear in fiction and all those things of how people well, you know, just the teaching part how people learn to come into their own Mm -hmm. and stop imitating, which happened to me too. Mm -hmm. You know, I was imitating for a long time and then I found my own way. And that's the most exciting thing when people start writing in their own voice. But a lot of political realities have come to me through my students. And I feel very lucky for that. I, you know, I go into school in Newark and I have one life and then I come back to where I live which is a suburb that's different, and it's it's a different world. And I love the millennials. I've been very fortunate to be with that generation of people. Mm-hmm. I think they're wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's great. I've gotten, they, it's a cliche to say you've gotten more than you've given, but it's really been true for me. That's so excellent. I heard that you are possibly working on a novel that feels like a sequel to the t- uh, titular yes. story of In the Gloaming. Yes, that's true. You guys, this is Christmas in July. <laughs> Seriously, this is Christmas in July. You have no idea. Beloved Laird does not make it. So who are we structuring this well, novel? Well, we're going to see a little bit of Laird in this book. Oh, good. Okay. But it's really a lot around the sister who, mm-hmm. when I first wrote the story... The sister was the point of view character. Right. And then she went completely out of the story mm-hmm. and really has one line in the story. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, I've been working with these characters. I never could let go of them. And I didn't write it as a novel at the time, even though people suggested it, because it would have all been backstory. But now it's this many yeah. years later, and all these characters have had all these years to mm-hmm. live without him. So it really is a book. You know, I the metaphor I keep thinking about is um, absence. And, mm-hmm. and not just, you know, obviously it goes beyond just a family with a missing member who's a very important member, the member who's the glue. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the things that have gone missing in the last 40 years of our right. culture, which right. has really been huge. I think those of us mm-hmm. who remember what it was like in the 70s as opposed to how it is now, not to glamorize or romanticize, mm-hmm. but things have gone in a direction that are, are alarming to me. I was having lunch with a friend who's in her 70s now, and we were both agreeing that it felt like we were living in the 80s all over again, and neither of us was particularly pleased with that development. But um, it was also nice to have someone with a little more experience than me saying, oh, no, you're not wrong. No, it's the 80s again, so I'm very, very, very curious to see what happens in this next book, but, you know, I suppose I can be patient. And, you know, we're getting dangerously close to when I promised I would hand back the stage, but uh, before we wrap things up, I have one other question, but it's about Elizabeth Strout and O. William, which I heard you handed that off to your mom, and I'm just wondering what your mom thought of the book. She hasn't told me yet. Oh. I know. 
I liked William. I mean, listen, I, I that's made... my favorite book of hers. Right? I think it's, I think I'm terrific. the only person in the world who feels that way. But I love how much looser she's gotten in her work. Mm-hmm. Um, that book is so open yeah. and uh, loosely woven. I like that. It's something that happens to older writers, mm-hmm. that they stop trying to control everything as much. Not that I don't love her earlier work. I love all her work. But this one seemed to me to be just like calligraphy. You know, it was just like a dashed off. Yep. Not that she dashed. I don't want to say she dashed it off, but it was like, okay, here's this many years of someone learning to write and here's like just the one second impression and it was very powerful. It felt like there was a direct line from Olive again yes, to O. William in a way that I had not previously seen in her work but O. William was a delight so I hope your mother reports back soon. (laughs) (laughs) Alice Elliott Dark thank you so much for joining us at the Barnes and Noble in Union Square this is poured over and thank you again Alice. Thank you so much Mira. Hello readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Fellowship Point. My name is Mark. And I'm Becky. We're coming to you from our Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we've got a couple of books to talk about. I'm going to go ahead and go first, if that's cool. Of course. Yay, thanks. Uh, (laughs) So I chose a book by Charles Frazier. He is pretty well known for his historical fiction, specifically Cold Mountain. But I wanted to talk about a book called Night Woods, which is uh, a little bit more zeroed in on the 1960s in Appalachian country. And it tells the story of two sisters. Uh, you have Luce, who is pragmatic. She is antisocial, pretty closed off in general. And her sister Lily, who is effervescent. She is generous and naive and kind and soft. And Luce has essentially shut herself off from the world. Uh, She lives out in the wilderness. She doesn't really have a whole lot to do with people other than her sister. And Lily, when she falls in with a pretty dangerous person uh, who threatens her family life, her children, herself, resulting in something truly awful, uh, Luce is tasked with um, taking ownership of these children, these two twin kids. And she essentially has to unlock these doors of solitude that she's built for herself in order to take care of these two young people who are filled with trauma and are most likely still in danger. Uh, this book is filled with Fraser's trademark gorgeous writing. Uh, and it's a great sense of the Appalachian wilderness. Um, he just does a great job of describing a sense of time and place. And this book is obviously no exception. So please check out Nightwoods by Charles Fraser. Becky, do you have one for us? I do. Right. Uh, thank you. That's a, yeah, that, that sounds like a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm familiar with Cold Mountain. I am less familiar with that one. So I may have to check into it. Do it. Um, so the one that I chose is an oldie, uh, but a goodie, I think. Uh, it is Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. Oh, 
So um, this is by Fanny Flagg. This was written back in the 80s. Um, and then, of course, everybody knows the movie. Well, maybe not. I don't know. Am I too old? Maybe no. showing my age. Um, uh, <laughs> the they movie, better know. I was going to say, there was a movie that came out in 1991 with Jessica Tandy and Kathy Bates, which is fantastic. So if you haven't seen the movie, please watch it. But definitely read the book, too, because there are some differences, as always. Um, but this book just celebrates women. It um, tells the story mainly, well, it's kind of split in two. Um, it tells the story um, of Evelyn and Mrs. Threadgood, or Ninny. And um, these two meet at a um, retirement community. And Evelyn is going there to visit her mother-in-law, who she really doesn't want to talk to. Uh, she is in kind of the middle stages of her life in a marriage that she's not really enjoying. Um, and she's just kind of not just she's just not sure really what to do with her life. Um, but she meets Mrs. Threadgood, Ninny, and they strike up a, a, just a beautiful friendship. And um, through talking with Ninny and the stories that she tells her, it really revitalizes Evelyn and uh, and kind of, you know, sparks that that renewed energy so that she can maybe go out and, you know, really take this this stage of her life by, you know, by the steering wheel and start going with it versus just letting life lead her. Um, but the stories that Ninny shares um, are mostly about um, a couple in the 1930s, Iggy and Ruth, who uh, run the Whistle Stop Cafe. And this is in Alabama. Um, and it's just the stories that she tells are um, leave you wondering if this is, did, did she know these people? Are, you know, is she Iggy? There's that question. Uh, but it's, um, and again, it's just celebrating women. Um, the two, uh, Ruth is coming from um, an abusive relationship, and but she has um, a son that she is trying to take care of, and Iggy takes them in and is, you know, willing to help and kind of protect her. Um, and really the whole community swarms around to keep her safe from her abusive husband. And um, there's so much. There's a lot um, to devour. Um, and honestly, this book was actually a little bit of ahead of its time in um, the way that it dealt with um, a lesbian relationship in the 30s. Uh, I think, I feel like in the 80s, that was a little unheard of, but I, I don't know uh, for sure. But it was, it's certainly, but it's just, it's dealt with like very just naturally and not really in any exploitive way. Uh, and it, there may be some things as far as there is some racism that is happening in that area in that time that is talked about. I think it still ages well, but I will be honest, I have not read it, gone back to read it recently. So take that with a grain of salt. Uh, mm -hmm. But I do still think the book is worth uh, checking out. And like I said, it is Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe by Fanny Flagg. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nice oh, choice thank you well thank you all for tuning into poured over today uh please make sure to give us some support with a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode you can also follow us at barnes and noble mm -hmm. i'm mark i'm becky and you can follow our fantastic <laughs> home store at bn westchester thanks again for tuning in and happy reading bye, bye. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.